I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. <laughs> Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop to celebrate the publication of The Hamlet Doctrine by Simon Critchley and Jameson Webster, published by Verso. In the book, Simon, a philosopher, Jameson, a psychoanalyst, re-examine Hamlet and its continued relevance in the modern world. And I was going to say they are here this evening to discuss the book. However, unfortunately, Jameson can't make it. But we do also still have our chair, Dr. Shahada Bari, Lecturer in Romanticism at the Department of English, Queen Mary, University of London. The discussion will last approximately 40 minutes, after which there will be time for questions, so please do think as you go along and don't be shy. I'll be around with the microphone, and there'll be an opportunity to buy books, and we have some pre-signed copies ready already. But with no further ado, please join me in welcoming Simon and Sheeda. Thank you very much. Welcome to the, <laughs> to the Hamlet Doctrine, a conversation with Simon Critchley and Jameson Webster. Um, my name is Shahada Bali and I'm a lecturer at Queen Mary University of London. I teach literature and philosophy and I'm your chair. Um, so as was pointed out and as you can tell, we are missing one of our number. Um, and unfortunately, unfortunately, Jameson is unwell, I think, mm-hmm. um, and unable to travel to the UK um, and is thereby not participating in today's Event. And I know that she's terribly disappointed um, about this and is as sorry as we are that she's not able to join us. So I pass on her apologies to you. I'm hoping that she'll be a presence in our discussion, uh, nonetheless haunting us like the spectre of old Hamlet, um, groaning and clinking her armour um, in discontent as we ramble on indecisively about whether we want to murder our uncles. But what we have instead is Simon for a full 40 minutes. And my plan is that I'll invite Simon first of all And my plan is that I'll invite Simon, first of all, to talk about the book. And then I might ventriloquise a bit and read from something that Jameson has written about the Hamlet Doctrine, so you have a sense of her thinking as well. And then I've got two sets of questions for you, Simon. So the first set is about the arguments of the book. And then the second set are about the writing process with Jameson, who, as you will know, is your partner. And I need to confess that I emailed Jameson behind your back last night um, with 
a set of questions which she kindly answered by email. And I thought that we could play it a bit like that programme, Mr and Mrs, where I ask you the questions and we see how far your answers match up with hers. So I asked her things like, did you enjoy the writing process with Simon? Hell no, it was a phrase that came up a few times. Anyway, um, and then I will hand over to you guys as soon as I can. Um, And I hope you'll have um, lots of questions. Um, so that's how we're going to play it. So let me introduce Simon, first of all. Professor Simon Critchley, he's the hands Leonist Professor at the New School for Social Research, and he is a part-time philosopher at Tilburg University in the Netherlands and also teaches at the European Graduate School. His many books, I think they're philosophical in different ways, sometimes addressing a fairly narrow academic discipline and other times seeking a much broader audience, but I think they're always difficult and ambitious and very often impassioned works. And amongst the significant titles, I would include The Ethics of Deconstruction, which was Edinburgh 1992, Very Little, Almost Nothing, which was Routledge 1997, Infinitely Demanding, uh, Verso 2007, Very Handsome Book of Dead Philosophers. I don't think the philosophers are handsome, but it's a very handsome book of dead philosophers. Uh, and that was in the New York Times bestsellers list as well, wasn't it? Which I think is a rather remarkable thing. And most recently, prior to the Hamlet book, The Faith of the Faithless, which is a really deeply complex and varied book about secular belief, political formations, and ideas of love that you derive from a tradition of medieval female mystics. And I think that's connected to the Hamlet doctrine in some way. And I'm, now... Yeah, I married a female mystic. <laughs> um, we'll find out in a bit. Um, and now, the Hamlet doctrine, uh, verse 2013. So we're very pleased to have you here with us. Now, Jameson, in absentia today, is the co-author of The Hamlet Doctrine and your partner. She's a psychoanalyst in private practice in New York City and teaches at Eugene Lang College and at City University of New York. She's the author of The Life and Death of Psychoanalysis, which Darian Leader described as unique, pursuing the question of desire through a perpetual process of unbalancing the boundary we might expect between form and content. And he describes her as thought-provoking, unnerving and spunky and it's such a shame she's not here mm. but Jameson has also written for Apology, The Esthete, Cabinet, The New York Times, Playboy and innumerable psychoanalytical publications. Now the Hamlet Doctrine, if you haven't already got a copy, was published this month. What did you find out about the Playboy thing? <laughs> I didn't research that but maybe I can ask you about it but maybe somebody will ask an impertinent question about what Jameson wrote for Playboy uh, in the Q&A <laughs> section. But the Hamlet Doctrine it claims to see, or the modern paradox, to see in Hamlet the manifestation of the modern paradox of our lives, where we know we cannot act. So it's not just that we can't decide whether to act, but we know that we cannot act. But the book is also driven, I think, by a certain impulse for iconoclasm about Shakespeare studies in general. And you say that rather than look at Hamlet in the usual humanistic and moralistic manner, Hamlet, where Hamlet is a nice guy who suffers from this unbearable task and burden, you and Jameson approach the play in the spirit of what Virginia Woolf calls rashness, illness and irreverence. And you look at the play through the lens provided by a singular series of outsider interpretations. And you include amongst them Schmidt, Carl Schmidt, Walter Benjamin, Hegel, Freud, Lacan, Nietzsche, Melvin and Heine Müller. So Simon, I thought it'd be interesting to have you tell us what you think is at stake in the book. What's at stake in the book? Well, marriage, for one thing. Love. You know, what it means to to try and write in a way... I've, the last years I've been consciously trying to write with less control in um, 
not in an uncontrolled way, but a different kind of control. And the quote that you read out by Darian Leader about Jameson's, uh, the way she writes, and so, for example, her book on life or death of psychoanalysis is structured around a series of dreams, which were actual dreams, and then you use the dream as a, a way of interpreting, but as a, way, as a formal device. So, the, for me, very consciously, it's, it's a, an attempt to, to write in a way, write in a different way, and not to do the, the usual philosopher thing. In this paper, I will argue the following points, point one, point two, point three, or I have, and I will defend these claims, and in my opinion, this is the case. And just to try and lose all that apparatus and write in a different way with a different voice. So part of, not a part of it, but that is what's at stake is, uh, is voice and trying to write. I could go further and say embarrassing things about this because, I mean, obviously what's at stake in the the book and in the play is the question of sexuality and sexual identity at every level and um, previously <laughs> I collaborated a lot with uh, Tom McCarthy in writing but Tom is a man and that's a certain kind of collaboration but with Jameson it was a different kind of intensity so what's at stake there in a sense is the book is a, is a kind of act of mutual ventriloquism. Right. It, it's, you know, you, you're trying to write with what you imagine somebody else's voice to be and then vice versa in order to try and find some, some other kind of voice. So the book, you know, I, I like the book because it's not written by me in a way. It's, 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 you know, it's some other thing. And as the book, prog- as the book doesn't progress, as the book unravels, uh, I think the voice becomes a bit more becomes much more interesting and um, and the final parts of the book were kind of I mean, I'm going back to front I know because you want to talk the writing process but but the you know it was really you know written a lot of it was written on the floor in sentences sort of spat out and then rearranged and you know, just trying to sort of deliberately mess with the, the way in which one normally writes and also, there are passages in this that I don't understand, which I find quite interesting. I mean, I think they're good, but I couldn't necessarily tell you what they mean. Um, and that's also what's at stake for me in the book: because it's losing, losing the, uh, losing that obsessional desire to control the meaning of one's own work. Right? And philosophers are the the worst kind of obsessionals in that right. way. So, to tr- and that is also. You know, guess what's at stake is about the, the question of love, because in order for love to be, in order for love to be, there has to be some kind of loosening of that control, right? Uh, and which Hamlet is very bad at. Right. But uh, so, in a sense, those 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 things are kind of at stake. And for us, I mean, the the odd thing about this book and for us is that I mean, one person. One person read it before it was published in the US, and that was the editor, and we did that as a courtesy because we thought we'd do this with a kind of obscure art press, you know, in 50 copies. And so for us, it feels like the most intimate kind of Mm. record of something. So I find it very hard to even talk about. Wow, wow. So we're very lucky to have you talking about it. Well, no, it's not that, but it it feels like it it feels, you know, horribly intimate. 
Yeah. Although I could say yeah, there are arguments here and structures yeah. and claims being made, and that's all true. But in a sense, what's at stake is something much more private in a way. Just to follow up, because it was so consciously <clears throat> written for each other in yeah. a certain way, at what point was there a sense that it, and was there a point that it could also be consciously for a broader audience, even an academic no, audience? No, no point, really. No point at all. And it's, I think it's also, a, I don't know, I mean, you can write for audience and not write for audience. It's, um, I think people should write for audiences and have a sense of that in mind, but at other times I think you just, you just, fuck it, I'm going to write this. Right. So I had a contract for another book, which was going to be a kind of book for a certain audience, and that dissolved, and this took its place which is in a sense is written for nobody in that sense. And, that, that, and so what I like about the book is someone, in a sense, who was involved in writing it, but I could look at it as a kind of spectator, is there's a kind of fuck you attitude in the book. It's, there isn't a central argument. There's no overriding thesis we keep coming back to. There's no yeah. soundbite message that you can summarise and spit out in a series of publicity statements. And it was very well caught by John... Miller in his review the other day in The Independent where in a sense there's a deliberate refusal to do that and and why should books you know be uh, offer themselves up in that in that easily digestible way I mean the book I think is it makes sense but there's a kind of I think particularly with with the way Jameson works there's a kind of force to the language which exceeds some simplified meaning And, and, and and also I mean, what's extraordinary about working on Hamlet or, or Shakespeare is you're working on, um, you know, the, 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 not the origins, but the, the emergence of the language that we happen to be speaking now. And it feels like every, every word of Hamlet is a kind of cliché. Right. In a sense, you, everything feels familiar. And so a lot of the book is in, involves quotation, or even when it's not direct quotation, it's implicit quotation. And... It's a, also a kind of reacquaintance with what we can think of as the English language, yeah. and also the um, the American version of the English language, because you know it's at this time that those boats sail west, and uh, two main things go with them: the King James Bible and and Shakespeare. And so it's it's a strange thing to work on because it see it feels absolutely familiar at some level, yeah. and then. You, you read the literature on Hamlet and you find nothing particularly interesting. It right. all feels terribly dull. So we were... Can I pick you up on that? Yeah. Because you interviewed about the book recently and you said, rather punkishly, I think, that the banal biscuit box Shakespeare needs to be broken up. And I really like this. I like this idea that we're over-sugared, gluten-intolerant <clears throat> um, readers stuffing ourselves with Othello-flavoured custard creams. Mm. Um, but this idea that... Shakespeare's work has to be more dangerous again. Yeah. Well, I thought it's always been dangerous, hasn't it? What What is it that you think makes your account of Hamlet dangerous again? Mm. Um, well, in a sense, nothing. Nothing more dangerous than the play. I mean, the, the thing is that we can't we can't really bear to read the plays. It, we we want Shakespeare kind of pre-digested and pre-assimilated and or go and see a play and often be bored or fall asleep or be captivated, which can even be worse. And we don't think. In a sense, it's to, it's to pay attention to the 
the argument structures and the reasoning, the complex reasoning processes in these plays, and not just to think, not just to revere them as kind of icons of culture. So, so Shakespeare is dangerous, and the best Shakespeare interpretation that we found and we tried to put together in the book is extremely dangerous and interesting. But it, it's almost as if Shakespeare is is too much, and then books on Shakespeare often have to explain or find some historical explanation or some biographical explanation or something that sanitizes it, right. that, that makes it comprehensible. And there's something just wonderfully excessive about many of these plays. And if this is, you know, some kind of foundational series of texts for this language and this culture, then we're particularly blessed in that regard. But we do our best to disguise that fact yeah. through a kind of... Uh, series of things. I want to pick up this, on this idea of irreverence or reverence or the, the shaking up of foundations because mm-hmm. and particularly this idea, the idea of violence I think and this follows on from your work on the faith of the faithless where you're robustly critical of what you take to be Zizek's defence of revolutionary violence. Manneristic boy Marxism. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure many people would disagree with that. I thought plenty but of people it, would disagree with but that. But it struck <laughs> me, hopefully not in this room, um, but it struck <laughs> me that um, in a way that Hamlet doesn't suit you insofar as it's a text that really seems to valorise violence uh. as much as it denounces it. And it really, I think it really is an option to Hamlet that you might end a sea of troubles by taking arms, taking up arms. Mm-hmm. And the play ends with the sound of invaders and fort and brass, whose, whose very name means strength in arms, strength right? Arm, yeah. So it's not just about it's not just about violence, but also revolutionary violence. It's a play about mm-hmm. the fantasy of regicide and the possibility of regicide. The king is not just a symbol; he is a thing. The king is a thing mm-hmm. that could be brought down. He could be killed. He must be killed. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask you: How do you square that question of political violence? grotesque violence but revolutionary violence mm-hmm. um, how do you square that bearing in mind how you feel about the kind of Zizekian stance on revolutionary violence well the um, I, it's a good question I, I'm not sure I can I'm not sure I can and it's it's um, the it theatre is a machine has always been a kind of machine for Processing, dealing with violence, right? And the, you know, as as many of you will know, I, mean, I mentioned this the other night. That the, the, the first play we have, The Persians by Aeschylus, 472 BC, deals with a battle, and it would have been played by veterans, war veterans, for war veterans. Right. Right? That we know. So, uh, theatre, the frame of theatre is war, and that is either implicit or radically explicit in the case of Euripides. Most of Euripides' dramas are war dramas, and that's why he uses the Trojan War as a continually recycled framework. And similarly in Shakespeare, the frame, the frame is war. So to use that sort of Judith Butler frames of war, frame. So the frame, the frame of this is violence, and the violence of, uh, of vengeance, not so, well, revolution, yeah, maybe revolution in the sense in which we begin with we begin with the death of a king and then we end with a new king, Fortinbras, so a kind of revolution in that sense. But a revolution where in a sense nothing changes. Right? Revolution just revolves, it spins. Yeah. 
So in a sense, not in a sense, the what we try and bring out in the play and is 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 the is the nihilism of this play and um, and and the the nihilism of that that violence in a way that we want to acknowledge and affirm the level, questions of justification or moral moral niceties in that sense we sort of put to one side um, so I'm not sure we can square it I mean in the sense in which it, you know you you can read this play as you know uh, a complex meditation on the fact of violence right? and what does it teach us I don't know at that point, we could enter. We we try and end up in the uh, the book with discussions of shame and love. It's the closest we get yeah. to a kind of an ending. But but we're we're also very intent. And the, one of the parts of the book that I'm most proud of is the where we just take the word nothing, yeah. and we try and show the the way in which the word nothing in Shakespeare, which is everywhere in Shakespeare, but in the play punctuates the play and defines each of the characters and situations of the play. So this is a play about nothing in a completely sort of structured and rational way. But it's, uh, but in a sense, everything dissolves in, in Hamlet. Everything dissolves. And, and it reveals a world that is a world of surveillance, a world of a police state where everything is essentially dead. Maybe that's our world. I mean, that's that, that's yeah. the that's, that's the thought that yeah. the uh, the the Baroque world that's revealed in Hamlet might be a foretaste of our loveless hell. Yeah, that, that's the idea. That sounds like a good moment to ask you about psychoanalysis. Right. Um, because in this book, you favour the Lacanian Hamlet over the Georgian. <coughs> so where Freud says quite straightforwardly and very confidently, overconfidently that Hamlet suffers from an unresolved Oedipus complex in killing his father and sleeping with his mother, Claudius does what Hamlet wants mm -hmm. and Hamlet desires. And for you in Lacan's account, it's not that Hamlet is Oedipus, but that he's anti-Oedipus, yes. right? Um, Oedipus doesn't know what he's doing when he does it, but Hamlet knows, you say, from the get-go. Mm -hmm. He knows from the get-go what he wants to do, what he must do, and it's this knowledge that paralyzes yeah. him, right? Yeah. Um, and it's the knowledge of something like disgusting, desirous life, sex mm -hmm. as well, mm -hmm. right? That is at the heart of the play, or at least in your reading of it. But mm -hmm. to my mind, what was more interesting, and I wonder, can I say this? Was it Jameson's idea? I don't know. What was more interesting was this notion that you, that, that there are, not just that you could psychoanalyze Hamlet, but that there are psychoanalysts in Hamlet, yes. right? You make this case, so you say, I think really persuasively, that Polonius is a bad psychoanalyst to Laertes, yeah. so he issues platitudes, to thine own self be true. He's just an to thine own self be true. idiot. Go to the school of life. Yeah. <laughs> Next door, in fact. Don't That's do that. right. <laughs> um, whereas old Be Hamlet, good, be good. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Knowledge won't paralyze you. Knowledge no, will get you a knowledge, husband. Knowledge will get you a husband. It will make you at yeah. peace with the world. But old Hamlet, you say, is the good psychoanalyst. Mm -hmm. And you say that's because he intervenes or cuts between us and our fighting mm -hmm. souls. And I thought that was extraordinary. And I want to push you on this idea okay. of psychoanalysis as a practice of self-consciousness, a discourse of desire and debilitation. How is it in this play? 
Well, it's a quite, you know, what's, um, I mean, I think the philosophical, philosophizing about literary text is largely fatuous. And uh, even the best philosophers do it. Right? Think about Badiou on Beckett. He still reduces it to a series of, sort of lines of interpretation. And I've always taken my cue from uh, Adorno, um, uh, who I, in a way, hate, but you know, you sort of love Adorno in a sense. He, he, when, yeah. when Adorno's writing on Beckett, and it says that the, the to philosophize about Beckett is to miss the point. You have to, as it were, uh, track the, what's philosophical in Beckett. I mean, philosoph- uh, literary texts are already themselves philosophically self-interpretive, right? That, that's the thought. So, and in a particularly acute way, uh, in, in Hamlet. So. Um, it's not that we need psychoanalysis to explain the play. We need the play to explain psychoanalysis and explain what it is that uh, that we we think about. And um, and uh, like you say, I mean, Polonius is the bad psychoanalyst who says to you know um, the king, yeah, well, Lerse is to be true, but then he says to the king what is the cause of Hamlet's madness that it is the very ecstasy of love love is the cause of the madness therefore you know putting together with Ophelia see what what plays out that's the sort of the, that's the kind of the bad shrink and then the good shrink is uh, the ghost who appears at the moment the second time he appears at the moment of um, uh, of Hamlet's matricidal frenzy right and it's that frenzy at that moment where he's, he's over her and he's he, spitting and swearing at her and then she appears and the ghost has said kill the killer but leave her right leave leave leave, leave her to her conscience and um, you'd still report that analyst to the association of psychoanalysts well, yeah <laughs> yeah well but, yeah I mean it's so uh, there's yeah there's a question or question number of questions it raises so that the, the ghost appears and says step between her and her fighting yeah. soul it's this idea that what the, the, the psychoanalytic imperative is to step between oneself and oneself, or to step into that gap that you are, yeah. and to and to hold some kind of mirror up to that, so that the um, so the the play you, you can see the play from the perspective of the ghost. The ghost isn't something that drifts in and out twice. The ghost, in a sense, is the protagonist in the play, yeah. right? Uh, the kind of shrink in the play is the, and then this links to the the ancient tradition that Shakespeare played the role of the ghost, right? And Shakespeare played the role of the ghost, having lost a son and lost a father, which is what Joyce plays within Ulysses. And um, I mean that that idea is very interesting. This sense that what we what what we learn from theatre is to see things from a ghostly point of view. And it's that which is uh, intolerable, yeah. because you know it's that's neither to be or not to be, right? Because ghosts neither are nor they are they not. In a sense, one of the things that's at stake in the play is the we cannot draw the line between life and death. Right? The play is it, it's radically unstable. Yeah, um, I, I wanted to ask you about that exactly. That the question of ghosts, bearing in mind that you wrote a book about dead philosophers and you're interested in mourning, um, but also because when I read the play, which I know fairly well in a kind of 
walked Bridge Way and stood it for a semester and been mm -hmm. to several performances. And I read it over the years. Mm -hmm. um, and then I read it a couple of nights ago, quite late at night. I read Act One, I was tired, went to bed, mm -hmm. read Act Two, mm. fell asleep. Um, <laughs> and then um, I think it was because the moon was out, um, I'd eaten cheese or something. But then I woke up like about three o'clock in the morning and I read Act Three and Four. And it gave me the total heebie-jeebies. I was uh -huh. terrified. Uh -huh. um, and I hadn't had that experience before, that it's a really terrifying... The ghost is scary. Uh -huh. The ghost is really scary. And Horatio's trembling when he sees the ghost. Um, there are more things in Heaven and Apparition than in your philosophy. There are people in this play that believe in ghosts. Yeah. Ghosts are real. Um, and Jameson says somewhere that the dead are the only creatures courageous enough to speak the truth in this play. The dead are the only creatures courageous enough to speak the truth, mm -hmm. truth in this play. And I wanted you to I wanted you to talk about the scariness of Hamlet's world, because I think you're good at getting a sense of that in the book. Yeah. And also because This is somewhere you fear this is to, yeah. to, to live in this world is to live in fear. Yeah. And rightly because people are being killed. Yeah. And um, as people were being killed in the Elizabethan police state espionage structure that was Shakespeare's world, where we don't need to go into you'll know the details of this, but you know people were being killed uh, fairly randomly, and the circuits of espionage and control were very thorough, and Shakespeare was of that world. So this was a world where one was radically at risk, and we had this idea of we had this idea of Hamlet that we get from Goethe really of a kind of you know someone who can't make up his mind <laughs> he's confused, he's, he's a ditherer but the world is kind of alright well, the world's a bit, you know, a bit melancholic but it's, whereas this is, this is a this is a dangerous, catastrophic and dead place which at some point is going to get you and so just survival is yeah. uh, is, is an extreme risk so, so the yeah. sense of the, the, the fear that grips all characters here is palpable um, and the closer you are to the centre of power, the greater that fear is. And Hamlet is a prince, right? And um, so um, he could be killed. He knows that he's going to be killed, but he knows from the get-go that's going to happen. That's maybe why he wants to go to Wittenberg. It's his only desire in the play is to go to Wittenberg to escape the certainty that he will be executed because he's in the way. So um, Hamlet is the drama of surveillance in a police state okay? and uh, again a kind of foretaste of what we experience in a more, maybe more benign way here but a kind of mm. foretaste and uh, the drama bit is important and I've heard you say this before about the weirdness of theatre where the living yes. are, are not living and the dead are not really dead yeah I mean to go to theatre is I mean, it's that that line is just not clear the dead aren't really dead and the, the living aren't really living and Hamlet is neither really living nor dead in the play he's alive and his first thought is to is to wish to die oh that this too too solid flesh would melt mm. and the only thing that prevents him from that is the lingering idea there might be some something worse than this there might God hath fixed his canon against self slaughter death might not be death, I mean, the to be or not to be soliloquy, I mean if you read that closely the, the consummation does did the consummation devoutly to be wished for is the sleep of death if we could be sure of that if we could be sure that we die and sleep then there's no reason for life in Hamlet just die, 
It's the bliss of coma. Just go for it. Right? What could be better? Well, this, this than this? You know. <laughs> yeah, this isn't bad. <laughs> death, no, this is awful for Hamlet. The death would be much better. The terror of death is that we could not be dead. There could be a, we yeah. could start to dream. Yeah. And then what happens in those dreams? What hideous things could, could appear? Yeah. Or maybe there is a God and we'd be damned. Yeah. Right? Um, so um, life isn't really life and death is not really death. And that's also true, I think, for Racine. Yeah. Uh, it's true for all of the ancients, and in a sense, it's also true for people like Ibsen and Beckett in different ways. Right? Think about a play like Ghosts, which yeah. is about the porosity of the line between life and death. Right? I mean, is is what's his name in Ghosts? Oswald is he alive? Is he, he dies? But is he really alive? And there are ghosts which uh, which continually encroach. So theatre is this. You know why is why is this why does this occur? We don't know why it occurs, but theatre, which has accompanied us for these thousands of years, is this kind of ghostly machine that we seem to learn something from. I want to ask you about Ophelia before we go to the Mister and Mrs. part, um, just because I think it's the most striking part of the book, which is this reclamation <coughs> of Ophelia as the true hero, heroine of the play. Absolutely. Um, and neither of you, neither you nor Jameson, shy away from the misogyny of the play, the disgust of female sexuality, <clears throat> the problem made of Gertrude's desire, and the mm. disenfranchisement of both of these women. Um, and I, I worry when I read the text, I worry about the cruelty of a man who can rescind love, I love thee not. Mm-hmm. And Ophelia says, I was not. the more deceived. Yes, yeah, I was I the more was deceived. deceived. Um, and you write very well about Ophelia's waterlogged, flower-strewn body. Um, and you, you say that it's the sight of life and death, vitality and rot, love and carnal sexuality commingled. And I like this very much. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. But I don't know that psychoanalysis, and certainly not philosophy, knows what to do with female desire. And I put that to you. You're right. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. The book is about that in many ways. Yeah. I'm not going to sit here and make pronouncements, but it's it's kind of... um, It's a kind of limit. Or it's... um, Yeah. It's, I mean, again, to go... Let's answer it this way, you know... There's an awful lot of misogyny in Shakespeare. Um, 
I could give a whole little lectureette on the sonnets where you could just trace the misogyny in the sonnets. Um, you know, the, the, the sonnets of the dark lady who reeks the kind of the, the disgust with fe- female sexuality, which only serves a purpose insofar as it can be a, a way of continuing male beauty. Right? The beautiful man has to be married in order that his beauty may continue. Sadly, that requires a female. And that's kind of the argument of the sonnets. So women are debased... And um, and yet, you know, and yet there's this there's Ophelia who something else happens. Well, to put this in, in other terms, that uh, the more that one I'm doing work on classical Greek theatre because it's amazingly interesting, and um, the more that you le- you learn about classical Athens, the more you realise how misogynistic a society this this was. Uh, women were veiled in the public realm, in the agora. Um, there was a very strict uh, sexual gender hierarchy in, in, in the birth of so-called democracy. Okay. Yet, yet, in theatre, something else happened. Right? We, we know these things about Athens, and yet we have Medea, we have Phaedra, we have Cassandra, and, and the rest of them. We have these figures where it appears that um, what goes on in theatre is a kind of inversion of the, the moral hierarchy that governs um, that society. What does that mean? We don't know what that means. Yeah? Uh, what I'd like it to mean is that there is the, the registering of something about something of the unruliness of, of female desire, yeah. Right? Yeah. As, as something which is implicit to the political order, encrypted within it, and killed by it but still kind of a ghostly presence there so in a sense it, it gets what's at stake in the book to go back to the first question is that is that issue and what psychoanalysis in its diversion which I guess we're closest to has tried to track is that question yeah. um, which isn't just a question for women right? yeah of course not at all. This seems like a, a good moment to bring Jameson in to try and unman you a bit. So the first question <laughs> I asked Jameson was, um, how was the writing process and did you distribute the work equitably? I think you should go first. <laughs> <coughs> Jesus. Was it again? How, was the, was, how it? was the writing process and did you distribute the work e- equitably? No, it wasn't equitably. I don't think so. It didn't quite break down that way. It was... Uh, it wasn't really a process. We began in different points and then kind of joined up. So we began at different ends and then it, it's yeah. a sort of meeting in the middle. So you think it was symbiotic? <laughs> no, it was more like a fight. More like a kind of a fight. Do you want to know what Jameson said? Yeah. So she said, it was difficult. Oh, okay. <laughs> Simon and I work in very different ways. He's more methodical in the slow burn. I work in bursts. He thinks more systematically aligning ideas... Where I, whereas I'm unhinged, wild, a bit of a stylist. I wish he was here. Um, I think we found, finally found form in short chapters. Um, yeah. The real fun part is in the beginning when you're just looking at the text and reading all the interlocutors in the book. We would talk about it over dinner. We watched every film version of Hamlet. Mm-hmm. We went to see the Worcester group Hamlet. Yeah. And then we had to sit down and start writing. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of bickering, as I'm sure you can imagine. <laughs> but it had less to do with ideas or even theoretical disagreements than just the difficulty of putting two voices together and two different ways of being in the world. We are like fire and ice. I thought that was rather romantic. 
um, I think a lot of the fighting was distraction from what is difficult about writing. Yeah. Um, uh, I suppose many think he did the philosophy sections and I did the psychoanalysis, but it's just not true. We mm -hmm. both worked on all the sections, um, but Simon would unwrite what I had written and vice versa. <laughs> when we finally allowed ourselves to do that to one another, oh, that's the beauty of work and of co-authorship. So that's rather nice. Oh, yeah. And then I asked her, does Simon have bad writing habits? And what do you like best about his writing? Um, maybe I should ask you, what did you, does Jameson have bad writing habits? She has um, <laughs> peculiar writing habits. She can write at such speed. Oh, right. Yeah, it's velocity is the real difference. I mean, to write intelligently at enormous speed is, is extraordinary. It's frightening. I can't keep up. Do you know what she said about you? So, <laughs> I feel terrible. I feel like I'm going to be cited in divorce proceedings. Simon has these professorial habits that drive me crazy. Yeah. As I will show in the next chapter, a point that will be proven in the following chapter, yeah. as we argued when discussing X, that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Luckily for me, Dan Frank, our editor, told him to get rid of all that shit yeah. to make <laughs> the book more weird and more staccato. I have a very bad super ego when it comes to being a scholar, basically, because I'm not much of one. I don't think so in the book. She is. Um, I just don't have the patience. Um, so I would often cave whenever these little things came up because I assume it's best to be more respectful or something. Simon would probably <coughs> say he likes writing with me because I lessen his super ego. In fact, you did say that sort of yeah. beginning. Um, mine, unfortunately, gets worse <laughs> in writing with him. What I do like about his writing is his prose. The man can turn a sentence and keep turning them. It's mesmerising and powerful to watch, and he's very, very funny. That's rather nice. The funny bit's nice. <laughs> um, I asked to also... Well, just to mention that, I mean, just to mention, you know, about writing processes that, you know, those of you out there who are writing or whatever, that it's something which, in a sense, is a, a dying species, uh, the editor... The yeah. editor. Uh, this book exists because there's a guy called Dan Frank in New York who's editor at Pantheon Books. And Dan um, <clears throat> said, make it weirder. Yeah. And, and it's in good And so we made it weirder and weirder and weirder, weird enough so that Leo bought it for Verso. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're very grateful to both of them. But in the sense in which, you know, that the, the, the importance of editors is because, in a sense, there's, 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 if you believe anything about, you know, the last 60 years of literary theory or whatever, you have to give up the idea of insight into one's own work. Right. We just do not know what we do, right? So which makes this laughable. I, mean, I don't know what I'm doing. And I, you don't. You shouldn't know what you're doing. And not only do you not know what you're doing, you're blind to what's interesting about it. I believe that. Right. The way that, that pulls a man basic insight, yeah. just think that's true. So that's why you need editors to see what you can't see and then say this is completely wrong it has to be like this and often there'll be a kind of 180 degree woomph and then you think okay then you don't see other things but that's, that's so important also excellent agents and, and, and uh, <laughs> superlative superlative agents Emily I asked um, Jameson who would you cast as your ideal Ophelia Hamlet oh, wow. um, she said Charlotte Gainsborough for Ophelia I loved her in Antichrist and Melancholia her vulnerability and frailty balance a depiction of crazy in a remarkable way. Hamlet, she ummed and ahed, Joaquin Phoenix maybe, Kenneth Branagh is her favourite. And then she said, I, uh, maybe after seeing Spring Breakers I could go with James Franco. I'm just crazy about him in that movie. Before that I thought he was a bit of a douche. Um, what do you think? <laughs> Hamlet and Ophelia, who would be your Hamlet and Ophelia? We're big Harmony Corinne fans. Oh really? 
I mean, you know, Harmony Corinne's Spring Breakers is, is, a, is a really great piece of cinema. If you've not had the chance to look at it, look at it. It's, you know, it's the kind of movies that Terence Malick should have made if he hadn't gone to Harvard and read too much Heidegger. It's a kind of beautiful, dreamlike pulling out of... Uh, and, and actually, you know, and Jameson's from Florida as well, so it's a kind of eulogy to the nihilism of South Florida. So that's, I guess that's why she likes James yeah. Franco. She said that because I said something mean about James Franco last week. <laughs> but, um, it's very intimate. I feel it. I couldn't think of it. I, mean, I like, I mean, Helena Bonham Carter in Mel Gibson's Hamlet. Yeah, good. Helena Bonham Great. Carter is an extraordinary Ophelia. Yeah. I think this is a point, I said this the other night, but it's just worth underlining, is that I think all of the versions of Hamlet that I've seen are flawed, and I've seen a bundle, and all of them have something very interesting. There's always some characterization or something going on which, which draws your attention. Um, Charlotte Gainsbourg, maybe. Hmm. One last question I asked her before I added to the audience. I asked, will you ever write together again? <laughs> and if so, what would you like to write next together? This is what she said, I thought it was lovely. Honestly, I don't know if we will, but I hope so. I really think we need to test ourselves again, test our relationship, and see what happens a second time, but not before a little hiatus. Like those people who get married again after getting divorced. I think I watched The Marrying Man, that terrible 90s movie with Kim Bassinger and Alec Baldwin, who got married after they made it and divorced, made it and divorced Life Imitates Art, 20 times when I was a kid. It was a bit risque for a kid. I don't remember a thing about it, except that they kept marrying one another over and over again. They right. couldn't stay away from one another, but they also couldn't be together. I think it should be like that. Well, I think that's how it will be, given that Simon and I are who we are. That's lovely. That's nice, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's remarriage, right? Comedy is a remarriage. Uh, it's always that sense in which, so in a sense, that's what's at, at stake in the book, and it's so it's um, it's it's an attempt to try and give voice to that difficulty to to give to give something and give something up. I mean, that's you know, hopefully that's a bit different from the idea of. Um, a, f- a philosopher or a psychoanalyst who is acquainted with some body of knowledge who can then transmit it to the great unwashed multitude out mm. there. I think that's a nauseating and puerile way of proceeding. Um, so in a sense, it's about writing in a way to create a kind of exposure and vulnerability so that something might happen. Or not. It might not happen. But um, but again, I mean, it, again, the, the, the thing is, is not to... I mean, you know, then we've got asked, well, what play are you going to do next? And we're yeah. not going to do any of the plays next. Right? That, so we wrote something for Playboy. Oh, and, right. And, and that's probably going to be it. Is it going to be illustrated? Probably. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's hand over to the audience. We've got about 10 minutes. I wonder if we can push for 15, maybe. We'll see. Um, so questions? Well, thanks, Shahida. So there's a, 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 a hand in the corner there. Maybe. Um, there's a married couple in the play. Um, which tends to be overlooked in most productions. I yes. And uh, I was just wondering how that is dealt with in the book. Well, it's dealt with, I guess, from the perspective of Hamlet um, and Hamlet's um, consternation as to, as to what's happening, which plays out in the fantasy, right? the, you know, in the rank sweat or an in-seamed bed. So for him... Gertrude and Claudius are like two pigs rolling round in a sty. Um, that's his kind of 
primal scene horror. So it's the way that marriage is observed. Now, uh, how might it have been from Claudius's point of view? I don't know. Um, he might have been happily married. He was drinking a lot, having a nice time. Uh, he killed the king and bedded the queen. And then the question is, well, how was it for her? And that's, that's the real question, which is, you know, tortures Hamlet and which is the, the real enigma of the play, is the enigma of the female desire in the sense in which what, who is this creature, this mother, Gertrude, and what, what exactly does she want? What does she know? And what does she want? So I think it's, you know, um, the play is, it's scenes from a marriage, seen from the perspective of the son, right? In Shakespeare, we have scenes from a marriage, seen from a different perspective, right? Macbeth would give us a different picture of a marriage. Um, but here we have the, the child's view. And I think from a child's perspective, there is something horrific about the parental relationship, however benign and lovely it may be. You know, There is that fact of them doing it, which created all of you. And we can't ever really come to terms with, how did that happen? <laughs> lady there, the glasses. I'm still a little bit confused about why you published the book in this way. Um, I know you said it's a bit of a sort of fuck-off to more formulaic writing, but the way you describe it as being so intimate and private and in some ways a reflection of your relationship. Um, I mean, it seems like an interesting exercise as two people who are, for two people who are married, but is there something more to it? I mean, why did you want to... Why are you here now, you know, talking about it, and why did you want to publish it and have it reviewed and, and in this particular way? I don't know, I had a contract and it's kind of... I'm not sure I did want to publish it or that I'm happy that it's been published or that I'm happy talking about it. I'm not really terribly happy talking about it. Um, And it feels kind of awkward, to be honest. Um, We're amongst friends. hmm? Well, yeah, but that's honest. It's it's not... I don't feel... um, It's... um, There is something... um, it's well <clears throat> to sort of back up a tiny bit. It would be the idea, the the idea that the first idea for the book. I was teaching with Judith Butler in um, uh, in New York, and she we were, we were teaching a course on Greek tragedy on tragedy, and uh, she wrote this lovely book, short book on Antigone, Antigone's claim, where she takes. Um, Hegel's and Lacan's interpretations of Antigone goes through them and then goes off somewhere else. And we thought, oh, we could do that for Hamlet. We talked about it with Judith and thought, okay, this would be a really good idea. So the idea was that, in a sense, a public act in that way, right, here are, here's Hamlet, this is why it's important, here are some interpretations, and here we can spin it off into something really interesting. But I guess, um, and that's what the book is, but, uh, I, you know, that's, I guess, how the book can be seen, but I guess from my perspective, it just feels more tangled and intimate. But, you know, that's, that's, that's me, and I'd rather stay out of it. I'm proud of it. I think it's really good stuff. 
And there's some really good sentences in this book, and it really moves. There's a kind of staccato movement to it. It's a series of like, you know, little sort of tiny little bombs, and it's and um, I, I I like the way it kind of acquires velocity at certain points, and that I find that, and if that can, I guess, um, if people find that interesting as a way of sort of loosening up a way of writing and thinking about Shakespeare, then I'd be happy. Um, if memory serves, and I could be wrong here, um, there's, Hamlet is, there's, there's a folio version and a later version. I just wondered if the book, um, two questions, I wondered if the book touched on not only the instability of, of, of the play, but the instability yeah. of the plays, uh, plural. And my second question was that you've, um, you've landed on Hamlet and you've written a book about Hamlet and you said you're not going to kind of do another play. Um, I was just wondering what brought you to Hamlet in the first place, in the sense that I can imagine a number of the themes that you've talked about um, right. tonight that you, you could you could at least bring to many of Shakespeare's play, but for me particularly, Lear is, is the big one and Hamlet comes second. So mm-hmm. I just wondered why you landed particularly on Hamlet. Well, it's, you're right. I, mean, it's just, there's a, I think there's been a shift in the last half century uh, away from Hamlet towards Lear in terms of what the great tragedy is. And I did Lear for... A level uh, at Stevenage Further Education College, and uh, and um, I love I love Lear, and it was that was also in my mind too. I guess the Hamlet from the standpoint the question of sexuality is there in Lear, obviously, but it's 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 more acute in uh, in Hamlet, and I suppose the uh, the story of the or- yeah, yes. The, the origin of psychoanalysis, so the Freud link, and also uh, we'd stumbled onto reading Carl Schmitt's book on little book on on Hamlet and um, and uh, and Benjamin. So there was so we we found there was this accumulation of Hamlet material, and then the play took on a uh, overwhelming power in relation to three versions of the play. We don't deal with that extensively, but it's very interesting. I mean Hamlet. Appears in the first quarto in 1602, three, I forget which date it is, as a bootleg edition, right? A bootleg edition, almost certain, well, probably, um, probably based on the memory, the Marcellus actor who remem- was remembering his part and other people's parts. And if you read the first course, it's very funny because the to be or not to be syllabi is all wrong. The to be or not to be, stuff like that. It goes on and whatever. And then the second corso is twice as long, which was brought out because there was a bootleg edition out. So what you bring, what you, when you've got a bootleg edition, you bring out a sort of a club mega mix version. <laughs> so the second corso is twice as long as the first corso, and the folio kind of tidies things up. So um, we we tend to deal with the second corso version, which is like the maximal version of, of Hamlet. And um, there's, I mean, the best edition of Hamlet for those of you interested is the one that Shahida happens to have on the desk, which is this the second album edition, which is just a, a trove of uh, beautiful scholarship. I think I've got my A level notes in it as well. Yeah. <laughs> Any other questions? There were hands. There's one <clears throat> over there. Is it Jenkins, though? Yeah, Howard Jenkins. Howard Jenkins. Thank you. Um, I wanted to ask, um, in addition to. Um, the Worcester Group. <coughs> Excuse me. The Worcester were, Group. Were there any other productions that influenced the way the book turned out? 
Uh, we watched an awful lot of film versions, and um, yeah, I mean the most. I mean the the the, the 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 there's a discussion towards the end of the third part on Heiner Müller and Heiner Müller's Hamlet Machina, which in many ways is. he gets there first I mean Heiner Müller's not just the Hamlet machine there's this extraordinary little essay by Heiner Müller called Shakespeare A Difference three pages he was receiving a prize somewhere and it just captures exactly what we the kind of world of debris which we're trying to evoke in relationship to Hamlet so, so uh, Heiner Müller reduces Hamlet to a seven page double headed shrunken tragedy with Hamlet and Ophelia, where Ophelia becomes a mask for Ulrika Meinhof, right? Um, and someone reminded me the other night, which I'd forgo- I knew I'd forgotten, but the gun that killed Ulrika Meinhof was smuggled into, into prison inside a copy of Moby Dick. Figure that one out. Um, going to Me- Melville is very important in this book. Melville is, is, is integral. Pierre, all the ambiguities, really structures a lot of um, what we're thinking about and the Worcester group um, who are I mean they don't come much they were in Edinburgh last year I think but they don't I, mean, I, I left here 10 years ago so I'm out of touch so for us they're like a local group down sort of down the road whatever and they're doing Troilus and Cresta at the moment but the way in which they proceed I think is, is extremely compelling and they do Hamlet as a reenactment or a series of reenactments based on the uh, 1964 New York production of Hamlet where Richard Burton was Hamlet directed by John Gielgud and they have that back projected in different versions and they're, so what they try and bring out is the, the repetitive and mediated character of Hamlet and, and, so, and they, this, this is important for us uh, the Worcester group uh, make Ham, Hamlet as inauthentic as possible and this I think is as an aesthetic strategy is hugely important to, to make Shakespeare as inauthentic as, um, as as it were fake as possible in order to bring out its truth right? um, the problem with that we have is with a kind of naturalistic delusion about Shakespeare that somehow the words spoken in a certain manner evoke in us deep emotions and Emotion, existential emotions, emotions of patriotism and pride. And it's, a que- it's a question of trying to loosen that up in order to you know, just to, to read and hear these words. That's really what uh, that's what we're up to. Trying to get, trying to be up to. But the Worcester group are pretty damn close. We head to the back because you haven't had much coverage from there. Um, the the last time I heard you speak about this, uh, I was struck by the when you refer to performances and so on. It's nearly. A, Predominantly film that you refer to, mainly yeah. some kind of um, anxiety about you know three dimensionality of theatre, or perhaps just the kind of spectral aspect of the cinema screen, or something. So, uh, yeah, you know. Well, we got a young kid, and we don't get up much. Um, so there's that, and uh, so we tended to most of the uh, we, we 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 looked at a lot of film versions of stage versions, of theatrical versions, but um, I would have loved to have seen more uh, theatrical versions of, of Hamlet. I've seen them in the past, but in terms of research for this book, we tended to focus 
on movies because of, as it were, the limitations of the, the context that we're in. You know, it's a kind of uh, perpetual loather of Shakespeare. Uh, the, the only Shakespeare that I find tolerable is also done by a kind of fish out of water, as you allude to in your own case, and that's Peter Brook. Right. Uh, it, and, and he's working in film, where he's, his usual medium is theatre. I just wondered if you saw any kind of connection there. Yeah, possibly, yeah. I've got no, nothing intelligent to say, but yeah. But, but yeah. Can I ask maybe a last question to end on, yeah. on love? Oh. Somebody just sighed <laughs> really dramatically. Oh, love. Um, oh, there is a question. Well, do you want, I mean, I, I was... Sorry, yeah. Who do you think is most in love with who in Hamlet? Who's in love with who in Hamlet? Who's most in love out of all the characters in Hamlet, please? Who's most in your opinion? Uh, Ophelia. Yeah. Horatio and Hamlet. Horatio likes, you know, that, that's a kind of there's a there's a there's a strong homosocial <laughs> bond between Horatio and Hamlet, which leads E.P. Vining to deduce that Hamlet is a woman. But the yeah, but it's it's more that the um, the strange thing that happens in Hamlet is that the uh, the appearance of the ghost leads to the dropping of Ophelia as someone who's loved by Hamlet, and then uh, and then we see the effects of that on Ophelia. Right? It's the effects of that that dropping and the fact that she becomes debased and is abused and used as a piece of bait, rolled out to create a certain political situation, and then and her response to her, the, the lock, loss of her father as well erupts as a kind of uh, florid and floral psychosis. So in a sense, Hamlet is, Hamlet is living in a loveless hell of words, 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 and Ophelia, uh, as is, for us, is the, the, as the, the character who loves most strongly and who is the most deceived. Right. Um. I, so the last thing I wanted yeah. you to, uh, to, met, to, to sort of raise was the difference between philosophy and tragedy. Philosophy right. being the, the wisdom of love as well as a love of wisdom, right? Mm -hmm. Philos. Um, and tragedy not being that. Tragedy being, I mean, you talked about Euripides earlier, but you know, mm -hmm. at the end of the Baki when Cadmus is talking agave down and she looks at her hands and she's got... Pentheus's head in her hands, right? Yeah, I thought so it was a lion's cub. How does love come out of tragedy? That's my last question. Um, it's it's at it's at stake in tragedy in a way that it's not at stake in philosophy. Philosophy is let me put it this way, and there's a I could talk about this for days, but happily I won't. Love is uh, philosophy is a discursive invention of the Platonic Dialogues uh, that, uh, amongst many other things, is, a, is premised upon a 
horror is perhaps too strong, but a need to sanitise strong emotions. In order, the argument of the Republic <clears throat> is an argument about education and what we need to educate the guardians of the future city, which will be a city that will be philosophically well-ordered, well-administered. And what the guardians have to avoid is excessive affect. The excessive affect in particular of grief and of joy. And philosophy uh, becomes a technique or a series of techniques for avoiding that excessive affect. And it's that excessive affect that is going on in tragedy, and that's why tragedy and theatre as, uh, as a whole, but the tragic poets in particular, have to be excluded from the philosophically well-ordered city. So philosophy begins with... Um, philosophy begins as a regulation of affect, right? a regulation of extreme affect. And I think it, it risks continuing in that way. And I, if I were you know, to, to carry on, I could take this through dialogues like Phaedrus and Symposium that deal with uh, issues of love. But to put it at its crudest, um, for me, there is something um, in the experience of tragedy and uh, also in, in Shakespeare, which is more than philosophy, yeah? more simply more than philosophy. There's there's a there's a a capacity, firstly for a sheer moral ambiguity, right? That we are in, in philosophy, um, we're often told what to think. We're presented with a certain view, right? The way through to the school of life or whatever. This is what's good in the way of belief. Um, Tragedy refuses that. We're presented with characters who are themselves defined by deep moral ambiguity and find themselves in a situation of conflict. And that conflict is presented to us as something we can watch and ruminate on, reflect on. And for me, there's a kind of um, depth to that uh, and a refusal to find uh, easy, simple determinations, which is... Uh, ultimately more powerful than philosophy. And for me, the greatest philosophers, therefore, are the philosophers who have perhaps most closely approached that condition of tragedy, like Hegel, early Hegel, Nietzsche, little bits of Heidegger, and I think there are certain other people I could add to that list, where there's uh, philosophy itself can be capable of, a, of that kind of... Um, of, that, kind of uh, that kind of depth. But there's a sense in which... Um, uh, what's at stake in this book to come back to that is um, is something that the, something like the limitation of philosophy and the need for theatre, the need to turn to theatre in order to uh, acquaint ourselves with what is with what is deepest, what is most disturbing and most tangled about who we are. That's it. Thank you. Um, ladies and gentlemen, Simon isn't available to sign books, but he is around for a chat if you'd like to come and say hello. Um, can you join me in thanking both him and Jameson Webster? Thank you, Shahida. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.